Hello, Monetization Nation. Welcome back to another episode with Andrew Romans. In the last episode, we defined venture capital, angel investing, and private equity, and we discussed three ways to de-risk venture capital and how entrepreneurs can leverage technology. In today's episode, we'll discuss how to raise capital for your business. What is the greatest monetization secret or strategy? Well, I talk about this a little bit in my first book um, is uh, kind of a, what's your magic button for distribution? You know, so if you look at uh, Giannis Fritz and Nicholas Zenstrom, they founded Skype and that was the biggest exit of all time out of Europe. They had, they had founded Kazaa as a copycat of Napster mm-hmm. at a time when people are not all comfortable with peer-to-peer technology or had unlimited broadband tariffs at home. And they're stealing their music and other things on Kazaa that they would be comfortable using Skype. So they put a button on Kazaa that said, hey, you don't pay for this stuff, why pay for telecom? And so that one button was the secret. Everybody had a software switch running on their laptop. So I could deliver as much as Vonage or AT&T off of my laptop, but I didn't have a button on Kazaa. So I tell founders sometimes, what is your button on Kazaa? that you can manifest or come up with to separate you from everybody else. Skype was no different than anybody else. They were using a voice codec that was pretty crystal clear. That was another one of my mistakes. I said no to investing in um, uh, the uh, voice codec, um, clear IP for that, that, that uh, Skype had to eventually buy to stop paying them the tax. But that was one thing. Now, another one is like, you look at MySpace, People think of MySpace as a failure compared to Facebook, but you got to love founding a company or funding a company. And six months from the launch of the website, News Corp Corp Murdoch buys it for $550 million. I would do that all day, all day. And you have your unicorns and I'll just live off of my little 550 million exit six months after launching. So what did they do? They said to music bands, you know, if you make your own website, which is a challenge and you become a big hit and you get a million downloads from Chinese fans, you're going to have to pay a lot of bandwidth to level three and it could bankrupt you because you're not monetizing your music yet. Where if you upload your songs to MySpace on your MySpace profile and even a bad, you know, high school band in Denmark has got like 1,500 people on their email list. And so they're gigging all the time they're adding emails to the email list. They're generating content. They upload that to MySpace and then they pimp it out to their mailer list through MySpace, watch my video. So MySpace was just sitting there while these people upload the user-generated content and market it to their email lists. And there's bands in the audience of bands and they're gigging, oh, come to my MySpace, my MySpace page. So they figured out to segment a market of music bands that are out there gigging all trying to chase their dream and, and providing a service that worked, but in a very viral way. So doing it for you know, video, you know, as a next generation, when the edge speed of the internet got faster, you know, these, these are you know, interesting things. The last one I'll say is YouTube is very interesting that the first time you saw YouTube, it wasn't on youtube.com. They allowed their website to work on your website. So you could, you could upload your video to YouTube embed it right in your domain. Yeah. So the traffic is coming to you. You got control or your user, 
Um, you've got your list of whatever, how you're getting traffic, you're paying for traffic, who knows what you're doing. And YouTube is extending extensively into all these other websites very quickly, but they make it so that you know it's YouTube, you know? So these are just a couple ideas that I thought, you know, you know, are interesting. If your only game plan is I'm gonna raise money or spend my money and put ads on Facebook and YouTube, you know, that's not impressing anybody, you know? Like at a minimum, figure out where your users are on the internet and then go on 14 websites and treat it like portfolio management. You drop your bottom three, you add another two. The internet's changing, your users are moving from Facebook to Instagram or something, you know, and just do something. You can't, you can't just say, I'm gonna buy my users. In all these companies you've worked with, uh, can you think of an example of one of them that leveraged tectonic shifts really well that, that drove great growth and monetization for them? You know, I think the biggest tectonic shift now is automation. You know, I think the biggest, the biggest tectonic shift is uh, how to, I mean, maybe an example is uh, really, so really is a, a company that acquired one of our portfolio companies, Lenda, and they, they enable you to get a mortgage in like six days compared to 90 days. And then they got to the point that they'll just buy your house. And so they, they basically took, they took, they, they looked through the entire workflow of the experience of buying your house for the first time or selling your existing house to buy the next one and went to like, how can I digitize? How can I just digitize as much of this as possible? So the word automation sometimes puts people off in the wrong direction in their minds, whereas digitization of a workflow, you know, you know it, it is a big thing. And so ultimately you'll be the Walmart that destroys Kmart, you know, you know, you know, in this area. That, that's, where, that's where most of our passion is now. When we see a founder, that's figured out how to really nail their CAC to LTV. And, you know, so CAC meaning cost of acquiring a customer, lifetime value, and what's the payback? That if they get these amazing unit economics on a product or service offering that is really working, I get very excited about, you know, just getting into the right revenue growth. And I think one of the secret ingredients to success in this monetization is just the entrepreneur, you know, bet the jockey not the horse. And if you're investing early stage, a lot of these companies will pivot and you like kind of measure lean startup iterate. And what you're left with is the market that you've invested in, some core technology and the management. So in a world of pivots, it's the management that, that, that you're gonna to have to stick with. And so being good at you know, backing good management is something I've learned, you know. Yeah, definitely. Great way to invest, invest in the people, not the product, because things change and you want to invest in the right people that are going to change with the opportunity and pivot with where they need to be, not where they started. Yeah. And like, and also just kind of work hard, but be kind to people and, 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 and do a lot of favors to get a lot of good karma is good advice to any entrepreneur. If you're out there spending a third of your time, like I think 30% of your time helping other founders and other people across the stack of all the different roles within the complex ecosystem, 
that'll that'll come back that'll come back to help you. So if you back the founders and they fail, um, and you were good to them throughout, and even like you know talking them out, out of depression and everything, and helping them get get up and running and somewhere else, they'll come back and uh, let you invest in their next deal where they learn from the first failure, or they'll just do something to help you. You know they'll introduce you to another deal and say. I know you're oversubscribed. You got to make room for these guys. They're great. Um, so I think um, supporting people through good and bad days is important. Okay. So for an entrepreneur that needs to raise some money, um, maybe raising money the first time, got a business started, got a great idea, bringing in some revenue, but but wants to scale growth. Um, what what advice or recommendations would you give that entrepreneur about raising some capital? Well, so, you know, I've got like 400 pages across, you know, three books that get into a lot of this, but something I did that I think is reputable, like I hate it when someone's like, yeah, and so I started this company, it turned to gold. It's like, well, that's, there's no actionable advice for me to, to, to replicate there. One thing I did was I was very young when I founded the Global Tele Exchange. And with that company, I recognized that I was very young. I don't have a lot of experience. So I managed to recruit the former CFO of AT&T to be my CFO. He took an early retirement, so it wasn't that hard to get him in a way. And then I recruited really top people, but I signed employment agreements with them contingent upon 5 million of funding. So, so I actually built my dream team with signed legal contracts, what their stock options were, you know, I had Pillsbury, the law firm doing it. Back then it was Pillsbury Madison Sutro, great acronym that they finally dropped. But they, um, I, I, I was then able to go into the VCs and say, it's not just me, here's the team. So it's like I have Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, the Stones right behind me to execute on this strategy. That's something that if it's all about the team, you know, go out and recruit people. If you can recruit really top people in this talent war where they have so many choices, that says something to investors. And if they see like Mission Impossible, you know, the beginning of that TV show, the Tom Cruise made some good movies, but I missed the TV show. It always started with him looking at the photos of who are the people to pull off this impossible mission. And that's kind of like a startup. If we're going after that business, who's going to crack the safe? Who's the woman who could speak with the German accent, whatever. So it's about recruiting those people. You can sometimes recruit people that says, Here's your deal contingent on me, my ability to, to fund you. You know, another kind of thing that's not as obvious as everyone sees is go to lawyers, pitch law firms, get introduced to the lawyers that do the VC funding deals. And they know a lot of people and they're, they're not, they're not going to charge you until you raise some money. So they're going to, they're going to help you raise that money by making introductions. And another one that's not super obvious is take something like 5% of the company and, it, and say, that's my pool for my advisors. Build a board of advisors. So who's the richest person you met or who were the parents of your friends growing up? Get introduced to somebody who's interested in your company that'll take some free equity in your business by being an advisor. And they have to introduce you to another advisor. And they have to introduce you to rich people that can pool together a little money to fund this company. And maybe they'll cut a check themselves. And so now you're actually raising money from angels, individual rich people to start to fund the company so you can get things going. Yeah. 
these days, accelerators are not bad. And in a world of post-COVID, you don't have to move to San Francisco to get into Y Combinator. It used to be that you had to, you know? So these people from all over the world are in an Airbnb for three months or however many months. So I think accelerators can be a good deal. And you get you can raise money during the accelerator. And if it's good, they'll have a lot of investors seeing you at demo day. And that's a good way to, you know, how are you supposed to know where to raise money when you've never done it before and you don't know any of these people? The accelerators start to pull the curtain back, you know, on how to get uh, connected to investors. AngelList is another option. You know, the options for raising money now are so good compared to where I was in the 90s. It's just night and day. What other practical ideas and advice would you give to entrepreneurs in raising capital? Well, I think not all, some entrepreneurs at the beginning think, all right, one investor gives me the money. I give him half the company. That's done. I'll go build it. He, he's my investor. She's my investor. You know, raising money is a process. And so, you know, a lot of companies will go through angel funding rounds, multiple angel funding rounds. They might have a convertible note, so they keep it open and they keep raising the cap. So the valuation keeps coming up. Then they go through an accelerator. They're issuing more notes. Then eventually they do a price round, so they sell equity. All that debt now converts into equity at these different valuations that they set. And then they'll go through a series A, a series B, series B funding round. And you want to demonstrate that you're growing the value of the business each time. So in a perfect world, you know, you raise a little bit of money at like a 3 million valuation or 1 million or 5 million. Then you raise bigger checks at higher valuations. So you've got to make some progress. You know, you've got to make some progress. And often that, that translates to revenue. You know, that this whole monetization nation that you're talking about is you've got to get some revenue in the door with either your B2C or enterprise, you know, enter, enterprise path. So there's a certain balance of knowing how to, if it's enterprise, getting some small customers that have some small logos that are not that big while you're working on the big logos of trying to sell to AT&T and Citibank, you're raising money from little guys that no one ever heard of. You show that to investors of like, all right, this is working. This is real business. Get some more money in the door, have more money to attack the big customer, land one big customer and say, whoa, look, we got Citibank. We can get Wells Fargo and Bank of America and everybody else. And then, and then um, you know, it grows from there. So it's just one way of thinking about um, that that's going to be a process. And at the end of the day, when you sell your company via M&A, which is the most common outcome, positive outcome for a startup, but I'd like to see more IPOs, um, but it's for the very few, you typically have to pay all that money back to investors with some kind of liquidation preference. And then after you paid them back, then you get your percentage of the exit consideration. So it's good to have some people around you that understand this, that have been through it, it can, can kind of guide you at each step of the way. So you don't do anything stupid that yeah, makes definitely. it impossible to kind of keep going, or this is even, you have enough money to attract and retain talent to work at the company. So you talked about kind of this post COVID world and, and some of the changes and, and opportunities such as being not having to be in Silicon Valley. Um, why is now a good time to start a business? Well, now is a great time to start a business because it used to be 
you needed to raise $5 million just to make a website. You know, like I had to buy SunSpark servers, you know, computers that cost $50,000. Like you yep. could buy a decent- I remember Audi. doing that myself. That was so expensive. Yeah. I, I once keyed into my closet that had a raised floor with air conditioners in it, opened up a SunSpark and pulled one of the joint CPUs out of it and then called Oracle to tell them to lower my license because they were- billing us based on the chassis and the CPUs. And, you know, our traffic wasn't all that great, obviously. You know, now you just put it on AWS, Azure, Red Hat. It's like, you know, it, all that stuff is commoditized. So the cost, the cost that there's open source, there's, there, there's how many women are on the internet. It used to be all a bunch of weird guys on the internet. So there's so many things in your favor to get a business up and running. It doesn't cost, like 500K will cover what, you know, millions used to cover, but then it gets into an arms race and, you know, you need money for certain things. So anyway, I think now is a better, also culturally, like I remember when the uh, com crash happened, I, I quickly went back and finished my MBA, which I had dropped out of. And people said B2B now means back to banking and B2C means back to consulting. And so that meant that nobody wanted to work at BCG or McKinsey or Goldman Sachs, they all wanted to be the next Bill Gates. And so now more people wanna be entrepreneurs and more people can be entrepreneurs, more people wanna be VCs, like almost everybody I know in Silicon Valley is or wants to be a VC. So there's just a lot, a lot of the difficult things are being easier. There's also more funding at every stage, different ecosystems like Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Southeast Asia, Europe, so many things are evolving with more funders at every stage. Um, what we could use is more big balance sheet buyers outside of the United States to buy companies or outside the West Coast. The five largest companies by market capitalization are all West Coast tech right now. Yep. Um, so, but that's, that's good and bad. It's good for founders that there's a lot of people that'll buy you and then get bought by the bigger fish and get, but get bought by the bigger fish. So we've got a pretty robust capital markets. I think we need to open the IPO market to uh, to be more like the way China works. You know, you don't have to be worth you know Uber raising money as a privately held company at a seventy billion dollar valuation. That's ridiculous. You know, Palantir taking that long to IPO or gets backed. I mean, so I I, I want to see the IPO market open up so smaller companies can have a currency that they can buy a company and their market cap more than rewards them for that acquisition. The Chinese have this and we don't right now. I partly blame our politicians, but they look so incompetent. Like I can't imagine them getting this right ever, you know? But it's also part to blame on, uh, on JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. So I say to hell with them, let's get some new bankers that'll just start filing some S1s and putting companies on the stock exchange. You talked about mergers and acquisitions being the most likely positive outcome for entrepreneurs. What are some strategies that you could give to entrepreneurs about how to position themselves for that merger and, and acquisition and then how to execute that? I think a lot of it is about the people. I mean, people say companies get bought, not sold, but um, sometimes a good company has buyers chasing it the entire time. So people were trying to buy my first company the whole time. Um, and that's a debate 
and what's in it, you know, what's the conflict of interest. Like I even make a five forces kind of Porter model of everyone that's got a say in this on the board, what is it that they want? And then what is it that I want? And um, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to people. So I think it's good to be networked to people, to have a lot of network of support around the company. Probably the most important decision you'll ever make as a founder is recruiting your co-founders or the first people you recruit to join your, you in, the, in that company. Um, that's probably the biggest decision. Getting investors in can be viewed the same way that um, I, I like to think of myself when I'm active with the company as a junior co-founder of each company um, that's trying as hard as to help. So um, getting a diverse set of people around the company to support it is gonna lead to good M&A. Um, like I had a call last night with a investment banker from Silicon Valley who I only met last week on a panel and he's gonna write a check into our fund. And as an LP in the fund, he'll meet all of our founders at our events. And so just being able to be introduced to investment bankers in an informal setting, um, like a barbecue style setting is interesting. And the guy's in the fund, so he should be trying to be useful without even tr you know, insisting that he get, wins the mandate for the sell side M&A for that deal. Um, but being introduced to multiple investment bankers, you know, investment bankers often will vomit up a whole lot of ideas in trying to win your business. So even if you run a process with the investment bankers, that you get you know, high level interest from your investors to, you, you, you have a good idea of multiples timing. Oh, there's a hole in the portfolio of this buyer. They're, they're likely to buy you for more. They couldn't pay as much as them. You know, it's like Google bought Picasa and Yahoo bought Flickr back when Yahoo was still a contender in the search business. Yep. Google had so much more traffic. They could have bought Flickr for a much bigger price and still made money on it than Yahoo could, you know? So figuring that kind of stuff out with a lot of smart people around that understand the industry or have those kind of connections. Yeah, definitely. You, you know, is positive. One needs to be careful of getting into an M&A discussion that starts to take up all of your time and you start dropping the ball on sales and all of a sudden what looked like a $250 million exit starts looking like it might not happen because this quarter sales are not as good as the previous one or we're no longer doubling year on year. So you need to almost control the situation as a founder that unless you're really ready to do this, um, just make the time to meet a lot of people and say, I'm getting more expensive by the day. Thank you so much, Andrew, for sharing your stories and insights with us today. Here's some of my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, when investors can see we have an excellent team, it will likely increase the chance of them investing. Number two, lawyers know a lot of people and may be able to introduce us to people who can help fund us. Number three, we can take about 5% of the company and create a pool for advisors. Number four, when we invest, we need to invest in the people, not just the products or services they offer. We need people who are going to be able to pivot and manage whatever change comes. Number five, raising money is a process. We need to make sure that with each round of raising capital, we are growing our company, building a steady base of clients and reaching for bigger clients as we go. Number six, it is easier and cheaper than ever to build a business. Number seven, if we're preparing our company for mergers and acquisitions, 
We need to surround the company with good people and foster our connections. Number eight, we need to find our magic button that can separate us from everybody else. To learn more about or connect with Andrew, you can find him on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. You can email him at andrew at 7bc.vc. You can visit his website at 7bc.vc. And you can find his books on amazon.com. And there's links to each of those sites in the blog post for this episode at monetizationnation.com. You can also get my free ebook about passion marketing and learn how to become a top priority of your ideal customers at passionmarketing.com. You can also subscribe to Monetization Nation on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, our Facebook group, and on your favorite podcast platform. I'd also be very grateful if you commented on, liked, and shared this episode. Thanks for joining me today. I wish you success as you raise the money you need for your business. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.